Monitor Monday is recorded before a live online audience. It's morning in America. It's Monitor Monday. For rural hospitals and small town clinics, big city health systems, and healthcare professionals, Monday means Monitor Monday. And Monday means gearing up for another week of audits by the government and health plans. Here now with the latest regulatory and audit news is the publisher of Rack Monitor and the host of Monitor Monday, Chuck Buck. Good morning, everyone, and welcome to Monitor Monday. As we come on the air this morning, Hurricane Florence is gaining strength. It's expected to blow ashore in the Carolinas by Thursday. We'll report on the expected health care issues associated with hurricanes when Alan Fink-Samnick joins us later in the broadcast. He's going to report on the social determinants of health. Also, today is the last day to take a stand if you're opposed to the proposed e changes. The public comment period closes at 5 p.m. Eastern today, and to help you make an informed decision, we have two reports. Hallelujah is standing by to explain why the entire healthcare industry will need to be retrained if the proposed changes become final. Also, Dr. Stephen J. Myers is standing by. He's going to explain how the proposed e changes could impact geriatric medicine. Healthcare attorney David Glazer is standing by with another example of risky business. And Nancy Beckley has the latest hot topics in the Monitor Monday listener survey. But we begin this morning with Dr. Ronald Hirsch, who is making his rounds here on Monitor Monday. Monday Rounds is sponsored by R1 Physician Advisory Services. Here now making his Monday Rounds is Dr. Ronald Hirsch. Well, good morning, all. You know, Rack Monitor has been spending a lot of time on the proposed changes to the coding and documentation requirements for evaluation and management services provided by physicians. And we're going to hear a lot more about it today. But as I've mentioned in prior broadcasts, there's much more to the rule than this proposal. And one section that I don't think is getting nearly the attention it should relates to payments for surgical procedures. With every surgery or procedure, Medicare assigns a global period of either 0, 10, or 90 days. That means any visits by the physician who performed the service and their associates during that period are not paid separately but considered included in the surgery payment. For example, a cardiac bypass surgery payment includes the surgery, eight visits in the hospital, and two visits in the office. For a long time, CMS has thought that doctors were not using all of these visits, and therefore they were overpaying physicians. For example, in 2016, there were over a million cataract extractions performed on Medicare beneficiaries. The payment for each of those surgeries included four office visits after the surgery. If the average patient is actually only seen three times, that may mean that CMS is paying for close to a million office visits that were not occurring. And that's a lot of visits and a lot of money. Well, in, 19, excuse me, in 2014, CMS actually tried to get rid of this whole system, just pay for the surgery itself, and then pay separately for each post-operative visit, but Congress nixed that. Instead, starting in 2016, CMS did some systematic data collection in selected states by requiring physicians to report every visit in the global period. And as you can guess, even though CMS required physicians to report a special code for these visits, there was no revenue involved, so many physicians ignored the requirement. CMS estimated that it was reported on less than half of the post-operative visits that occurred. But they were able to isolate a group of physicians who did report it properly. CMS called them the robust reporters. And using that data, it turns out CMS was right. For a procedure done in the emergency department where the payment included a second visit, 
that visit actually happened only 4% of the time. For surgeries with a 90-day global period, only two-thirds of those surgeries had at least one visit. And it pains me to say it, but orthopedics were the best with 76% of their surgeries having a post-op visit. Now, why am I discussing this? Because in the physician fee schedule rules, CMS presented, presented this data by specialty and stated they're going to dig deeper into this with more data collection in the near future to look at the level of post-operative visits, including the time, staff, and activities involved in furnishing post-operative visits and non-face-to-face -face services. So perhaps this time next year, instead of hearing doctors upset about proposed payment cuts to E&M visits, we'll be hearing from doctors upset about pro proposed payment cuts to procedures. And I suspect that surgeons won't be as nice as internists have been. Back to you, Chuck. Thank you, Dr. Hirsch. That was the Vice President of R1 Physician Advisory Services, Ronald Hirsch, MD. Dr. Hirsch was making his Monday rounds here on Monitor Monday. And now with the latest hot topics in the Monitor Monday listener survey is Monitor Monday Senior Correspondent Nancy Beckley. Good morning, Chuck. And first of all, a huge shout out to Monitor Monday longtime listener Susan Schlesinger in Tulsa, Oklahoma. She retired last year, but she texted me during the Green Bay game last night because she's a Green Bay fan to tell me she still listens to Monitor Monday in retirement. I love it. Okay, so the hot topic today is CMS has updated the Frequently Asked Questions document for an advanced beneficiary notice of non-coverage related to therapy, therapy thresholds, and what's going on. And I want to just highlight two items there that seem to be of major concern to people um, and Monitor Monday listeners that are asking questions. And the first one is, can a therapist transfer liability to a beneficiary for medically necessary services just because the patient has reached the $3,000 threshold. That's $3,000 for PT and speech or $3,000 for OT. And CMS clarifies, no, Medicare covers therapy services above the 3,000 medical review thresholds that are medically reasonable and necessary, and therapists should continue to add the KX modifier to all of the medically necessary claim lines. The next question I want to highlight is how does a therapist handle services that Medicare would never cover and is an ABN issued. Um, I think CMS addresses this, but therapy providers often have a hard time accessing this information. And CMS clarifies in the FAQ, an ABN is not needed for services that our Medicare never would cover. A voluntary ABN may be issued, however, and they give an example of a patient wrapping up her episode of care for low back pain, and she was discharged. Then she opted in to pay out-of-pocket for some wellness classes that were offered as part of a wellness program at that physical therapy clinic. And I'd like to remind everybody that our hospital listeners hear that all therapy that's provided during an observation status in a hospital are go toward the therapy thresholds. So now let's move along. A lot of chatter on the listservs and a lot of emails that I've been getting regarding targeted probe and educate. So I'd like to just get a barometer test from our listeners this morning. If you're a Medicare provider who's participated in the CMS targeted probe and educate, Check one if you've participated and rate the education process as helpful by your MAC. 
and check two if you've participated in targeted probe and educate and you rate the education process as not helpful. Chuck, we'll be back with this important poll results. I'm anxious to hear this from our listeners a little bit later in the program. Thanks, Nancy, very much. That was Monitor Monday's senior correspondent, Nancy Beckley. Nancy's the president and CEO for Nancy Beckley and Associates. And as Nancy said, we're going to have the results of the Monitor Monday listener survey later in the broadcast. And coming up at about nine minutes after the hour in your time zone, you're going to hear from David Glazer, Holly Louie, Alan Fink-Samnick, and Dr. Stephen J. Meyerson. This is Monday. It's September the 10th. It's the last day to comment on the Prozenium changes. It is also Monitor Monday. Stand by. Are you experiencing this situation at your facility? Insurance companies and auditors are picking and choosing how they want to apply the two midnight rule to your claims, usually to their benefit and certainly not yours. But you can prevail. During an upcoming webcast, you'll learn how to risk stratify your patients into the appropriate status. You'll benefit from a refresher course on the controversial two midnight rule, and you'll learn from actual real-world case studies, a straightforward breakdown of status assignment, including how to differentiate between rules that affect Medicare versus non-Medicare patients. Join us this Thursday at 1.30 p.m. Eastern for How to Risk Stratify Your Patients into the Appropriate Status. To register to attend, click on the handout tab in today's broadcast. We're back at a program note. Now you and your team can benefit from the latest compliance and regulatory education when you subscribe to the Rack Monitor Educational Webcast Subscription Program. Your team and other departments will have the latest information to help them remain compliant while avoiding audits and takebacks. And now with tips on internal investigations, here is healthcare attorney David Glazer. Good morning, David. Good morning, Mr. Buck. So yeah, one of my favorite parts of the job is helping clients with an internal investigation. And I'd like to offer a few lessons I've learned during some recent situations. Now, clients understandably want to minimize the costs of an investigation. But there are some times where that frugality can be expensive in the long run. I'm going to talk about when, it, when frugality is good and when it's not. So, for example, you might want to have one of your employees conduct a review of your documentation, and you might think that's a good idea. In some situations, it can be, but what if the employee is involved in some of the key facts? In that case, the employee has a huge conflict. He or she may want to hide, document, or hide facts or documents that reflect poorly on him or her. And if they do, that's the sort of thing that can have you construed as obstructing the investigation. So the document review has to be done with someone completely uninvolved from the case. Um, either that or use your outside legal counsel. The desire to keep costs down can also result in the desire to use internal resources to conduct employee interviews. And while I understand that instinct, a recent situation highlights a disadvantage of using internal staff. A colleague and I wound up interviewing an employee shortly they'd have had a, after they'd had a lengthy interview with company counsel. It was only in the interview with my colleague and I that the employee articulated a few crucial stories. It became clear that the employee was worried that telling the stories to the inside counsel could affect her standing within the company. She felt more comfortable talking with outsiders because um, she was worried about talking with people she worked with every day. There's often a fear that employees will be nervous when talking with outside lawyers. In fact, the more removed um, nature of outside counsel and the knowledge that lawyers have a duty of confidentiality tends to result in more candor. Finally, I want to share something I've learned that came as quite a surprise, and this one is truly a cost-saving tip. 
While helping a small client who had employees scattered around the uh, country, we opted to conduct interviews via telephone. The company didn't have the budget to afford in-person interviews. I began that process deeply skeptical of the effectiveness of these telephone interviews. You can't read facial expressions, and it can be difficult to hear. By the end of the interviews, however, I was convinced that there were also some amazing advantages to a telephone interview. Just as the anonymity of the Internet sometimes allows people to be more honest, perhaps too brutally so, there's something about a phone call that seems to encourage candor. Avoiding outside counsel for document review and interviews may not be the smartest cost-saving strategies, but if you want to save money by using telephone interviews, that's an option worth seriously considering. So Chuck, I'm about to give a cheap trick, and I certainly want our listeners to want me, but that isn't our band or our song. Instead, you can keep telephone interviews cheap as long as you follow the advice of Blondie, who's definitely a bit obsessed with phone songs. Don't leave me hanging on the telephone line. I'm in the phone booth, it's the one across the hall. If you don't answer, I'll just bring it on the wall. I know he's there, but I just try to call. Don't leave me hanging on the telephone. Don't leave me hanging on the telephone. Back to you. Thanks, David, very much. I was healthcare attorney David Glazer. David is a shareholder of the law firm Veterans and Byron in downtown Minneapolis. This morning, our Monday focus is about social determinants of health. The impact of last year's Hurricane Harvey is still being experienced in Houston, especially among the poor, the unemployed, and the disenfranchised. Those are the ones who are predisposed to the social determinants of health. So reporting on the compliance issues surrounding the social determinants of health is nationally recognized authority, Alan Fink-Samnick. Good morning, Alan. Welcome to the program. Thank you, Chuck, and good morning, everybody. As I sit here in the mid-Atlantic region of the United States awaiting yet another hurricane, Florence, who is about to hit and come up the coast, and our 2018 hurricane season has begun, but 2017 will remain historic. Harvey, Irma, and Maria had significant costs of $300 billion and over 3,100 deaths, 2,975 in Puerto Rico alone. Those persons most severely affected were already among society's most vulnerable, dealing with the industry's most popular topics, social determinants of health, daily struggles with employment, social isolation, poverty, food insufficiency, access to health and behavioral health. But wait, there's more. Add the storm victims not previously at risk, but compromised by prescription and food shortages, emergent medical and mental health needs, coping with delayed insurance payments, leaving them in public housing, housing crises. The tally of those amid social determinants skyrocketing and all seeking haven and hospitals. The 2018 storms are poised to further burden systems. SAMHSA's 2017 report explored how people with low incomes and socioeconomic status experienced disasters, most challenged by high costs of preparedness and unable to protect their property from the elements. Persons with disabilities found it impossible to move to shelters or evacuate. Regions with the, with the highest percentages of people at or below the poverty level reported the lowest percentages of people with flood insurance. Where does the compliance quandary fit in? 
Well, during disasters, healthcare providers are focused on damage control. I've been through enough of these in my career and know it firsthand. Routine actions that fuel reimbursement and assure compliance like standard documentation and HIPAA disaster protocols become secondary to other priorities. However, the prevalence of patients impacted by social determinants is an opportunity for all involved staff. First, document those non-clinical factors at issue. I know you're tired of hearing me say it, but I'm going to say it again. Document, document, document. Organizations can then use the ICD-10Z codes 55 to 65 to account for psychosocial stressors, but not without the non-clinical documentation to support them. Those for consideration like Z56, temporary unemployment, Z56.2, threat of job loss, Z59.4, a lack of adequate food and safe drinking water. Z65.5, exposure to disaster. We know the mantra, if it wasn't documented, it wasn't done or didn't exist, and that means reimbursement won't exist either. Next, while during hurricanes, most HIPAA requirements remain in effect, waivers are in place to expedite care, plus transition patients as needed. If a disaster is declared by the president and the HHS secretary, the declares a public health emergency, the secretary can waive sanctions and those monetary penalties against covered hospitals that don't comply with HIPAA, like requirements to obtain a patient's agreement to speak with family and friends involved in care, honor those requests to opt out of facility directories or distribute notices of privacy practices. The waiver applies in emergency areas and for the emergency period declared to hospitals instituting disaster protocols and for up to 72 hours from when hospitals implemented them. Keep in mind, HIPAA rules only apply to covered entities and their business associates, and this is vital for many social services agencies that are exempt. The Red Cross, for example, not subject to HIPAA and can use and disclose patient info as needed. Remember, amid disasters, organizations must ensure adherence to compliance programs and practices that fuel financial sustainability and promote care for all populations. Join me September 20th at 1.30 for the webcast, Remove the Stress from the ICD-10Z Stress Codes. You can check the handout folder for registration information. Back to you, Chuck. Thank you very much, Alan. That was Alan Fink-Samnick. Alan is a nationally recognized expert on social determinants of health, and you can read Alan's excellent article on the subject at rackmonitor.com. As we mentioned at the top of the broadcast today, September the 10th is the last day to take a stand if you're opposed to the proposed e changes. And so today, here at Monitor Monday, we conclude our ongoing series, CMS, Are You Listening? We have two reports. First, Holly Louie explains why it will be necessary to retrain an entire industry if the proposed e changes become final. And then we're going to hear from Dr. Stephen J. Myerson. He's going to discuss how the proposed e changes could impact geriatric medicine. Here now is Holly Louie. Good morning, Holly. Good morning, Chuck. Thanks so much for having me today. You know, these proposed E&M rules are much bigger than just patients over paperwork. You know, that sounds nice, but it's like adopting a cute, cuddly bear cub, and one day you wake up and you've got a wild grizzly bear running through your house. And I think some of those risks have gotten lost in the, uh, this is going to be good for all doctors. I think we all agree that the 95 and 97 E&M guidelines are outdated and include requirements to document myriad things that are irrelevant for a clinician. The problem is what is really going to replace those? The CMS has proposed keeping 95 and 97, 
adding three different possibilities of time-based services or throwing that all out the window and using medical necessity only. Which one or ones will be applicable is a problem. And how to know what to document. Right now, no commercial payer has bought off onto this. So will it be even worse because you've got to document differently for Medicare than you do for commercial? What about crossover claims? And the other thing to consider here is the expense and cost of the EHR implementations that actually perpetuated this note bloat problem. But be that as it may, undoing everything that's been programmed for years is going to be costly and expensive, and it will cross multiple areas of the industry, not just documenting an E&M. The next thing to consider is there is a collapse that goes with this of only two levels of service for new and established patients in the office. And for those who see very simple, low-complexity visits as their norm, they might benefit a bit. For physicians who see any type of high-complexity or patients with multiple problems, they will lose money on this proposal if it goes through because the levels four or five will collapse down into what will be basically the second level. So you will lose money on all of those. Included in there also would be the possibility of doing a multiple reduction anytime you do an office visit on the same day of a minor procedure, which now both are paid if the E&M service is significant, separately identifiable. Under the proposed rule, you would be paid only 50% of the lower cost of those two services. So all added together, there are multiple things in here that are not patients over paperwork, they are going to require significant investments in your systems, in your data analytics, with your commercial payers, and frankly, with your MACs. Will they be allowed to have idiosyncratic requirements just as they do now that don't match the national guidelines? So I think that's the takeaway today, Chuck, is really looking at these uh, proposed rules and understanding the financial impact, the operational costs, and the burdens that will surely come with them if implemented as proposed is not something to take lightly or think it will all be okay because you have to spend less time documenting. Overall, it will be increased cost for sure. So thank you, Chuck. That's it for me today. Thanks again so much for having me. Thank you, Holly. That was the past president of the Healthcare Business and Management Association, Holly Louie. And you can read Holly's excellent article on the proposed name changes on the Rack Monitor homepage. And now with our second report is Senior Healthcare Consultant, Dr. Stephen J. Myerson. Good morning, Dr. Myerson. Good morning. I'm going to be talking about the effect of this new CPT proposal on geriatricians in particular. Uh, as a geriatrician, I, I, I never really understand how understood how the square peg of my work fit into the round hole of the complex and confusing uh, CPT E&M coding system with its five levels each of new codes for new and follow-up office visits. Under CPT coding, coding guidelines, in addition to lists of required elements, each level also had a typical time assigned, but physicians were only allowed to bill for time if, the, if at least half the visit was des dedicated to counseling or coordinating care, terms I found impossible to define or tease out from the complexity of an entire visit. In the 2019 Medicare Physician Fee Schedule a proposed rule, which is CMS 1693P, CMS has proposed collapsing outpatient physician billing codes for, inpatient, uh, for new patients and for follow-up patients into a single code each with a single patient, uh, single payment. In addition to using the traditional CPT codes, 
Physicians could choose to bill for the amount of time spent with the patient or for the complexity of medical decision-making. But I fear this change, while it will reduce documentation demands, it will be at the cost of greater confusion and a significant loss of income for geriatricians in particular. It actually may make the specialty economically non-viable. Why will this supposed simplification cause confusion? Uh, while physicians will be allowed to choose any of the three billing options, Medicare auditors may not know which system that they used. Uh, if they apply traditional CPT rules, the auditors may deny payment due to lacking documentation that would not fit the CPT model. And if physicians don't step up their documentation, they're not likely to offer detailed explanations of complexity or adequately record time spent on the visit. Physicians know complexity when they see it, but do not. And unless the payers, payers adopt the new Medicare coding system, there'll be further chaos as parallel systems are used simultaneously by different payers. How will physicians know their, their documentation expectations are? The proposed coding will increase payment for brief office visits and slash it for those that take more time. Based on CMS estimates, even counting a $5 add-on code for primary care physicians, there will be a 10% reduction in payment for a level four follow-up visit and a 33.7% but for a level five with similar cuts for new patients of 16 and 33.6% respectively. A different G-code would add $14 for some specialists compared to the $5 for primary care physicians, and this would not be applied for geriatricians. Is this fair? There's an additional payment proposed for the most prolonged visits, but they would have to exceed typical times by 30 minutes before this payment even kicks in. Geriatricians tend to have more time-consuming visits because they specialize in the care of older, more complex patients managing multiple comorbidities, as well as geriatric syndrome. So we know there's a national shortage of geriatricians whose annual income is already $20,000 less than general internists, who are also hurt by this proposal, by the way. Reducing geriatricians' income will only exacerbate the national shortage. CPT coding of physician visits needs to be changed, but this proposal is not ready for prime time. See your mailbox for a Rack Monitor special bulletin, which was sent today, referencing my article on rackmonitor.com for more details, and also some ideas that I believe would improve on CPT-based coding and fairly reimbursed physicians for more complex care. Now, as Chuck mentioned, the comment period on this proposed rule ends today at 5 p.m. Uh, there is still time to comment, and you can do this online go to www.regulations.gov and put in the search box CMS-1693-P to leave a comment. Thanks, Chuck. Back to you. Thank you, Dr. Myerson. That was the Senior Healthcare Consultant, Dr. Stephen J. Myerson. Dr. Myerson is the founder of Stephen Myerson Consulting. Thanks again, Dr. Myerson. Now's the time for our Monitor Money listener survey, and once again, here's Nancy Beckley. All righty, Chuck. I'm really excited to see the results of this poll. We have 52% of our listeners this morning rate the education process helpful, but 47% do not rate it as helpful. What's instructive is we got a number of comments coming into our Q&A box and hoping that, the TP, that my poll had had 
mixed results because there were people that had mixed results. And we have a lot of folks basically saying that if the person providing the education knows what they're talking about, it tends to work well. Um, But when people don't know what they're talking about and are not um, primed on what the topic is, it's not going well. And a few people commented that people are just simply reading regulations. So Chuck, that's it for our poll today. Thanks everybody for participating. Thanks, Nancy, very much. And this morning we end our broadcast with some closing thoughts from Dr. Ronald Hirsch. As you've heard, the comment period is closing tonight. Um, we devote a lot of airtime to this on Monitor Monday and a lot of electrons on Rack Monitor e-news reporting. You've heard from physicians, a podiatrist, some lawyers, coders, practice administrators, and many others. Um, the changes, though, are targeted office visits, and most of Monitor Monday listeners are hospital-based. So why should they really care? Well, Although the IT department at most hospitals feels that their job would be much easier if there were no physicians, the rest of us realize that we need physicians of all types to operate a hospital. And if these changes are adopted, we may see more physicians retiring early and fewer physicians choosing cognitive specialties where they can't fall back on procedures to earn a living. Now, CMS has also said they're going to fix hospital billing next. So while I don't expect most of the listeners to submit a question, I think this is of interest. Comment period closes at midnight tonight. CMS will have received over 12,000 comments, many of these about this proposal. In the last two years, each of the physician rules received only 2,000 comments. So I'm going to make a bold prediction. In early November, CMS is going to do one of two things in the final rule. They're either going to realize that their proposal for a blended payment rate was not well conceived as evidenced by the universal condemnation from all sectors and not adopt it, Or, when they proposed it, they already decided they're going to adopt it, and they're going to ignore the thousands of negative comments. Time will tell. Thanks, Chuck. Thank you, Dr. Hirsch. And that's going to be a wrap for us, and I want to thank you very much for being with us today. Special thanks to our outstanding panelists, Nancy Beckley, David Glazier, Ronald Hirsch, Dr. Ronald Hirsch, and we just heard Holly Louie, Alan Fink-Samnick, and Dr. Stephen J. Myers. And we thank you for starting your week off with us this morning. And please join me for an upcoming webcast this Thursday on, quote, how to risk stratify your patients into the appropriate status. Until then, I'm Chuck Buck reporting for Monitor Monday and Rack Monitor. Thank you very much to our Jewish friends. Happy New Year, everybody. Monitor Monday is a presentation of Rack Monitor.